Hey, everybody. Sparky here. Uh, we had some issues with Luke's audio in this week's episode, but the episode is really good content, and Luke's got a lot of good ideas. So hang in there with us, and we'll have the audio sorted out next week. Mac Power Users, Episode 560, Workflows with Luke Bodwin. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett and I'm joined by Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I am good, David. How are you? Doing all right? <laughs> yeah, we're we're fine. I'm looking out my window at the uh, Silverado Canyon wildfire about three and a half miles from my house, but the wind's blowing the other direction, so I think I'll make it to the end of the podcast. That's good. Uh, yeah, we, we have everyone affected by that in our thoughts. And if you uh, have to run out the door, we will, well, let's be honest. We're just going to carry on without you. We love you, but yeah. we're just going to keep going. No, I, I am, I am not going to burn down gang. I'm fine. Uh, we're used to dealing with these things down here, but one problem that occasionally happens is that the power company will turn off power in the area because when the fires hit those stations, you know, bad things happen. So sure. uh, there's a possibility I'll disappear today, but hopefully not. Okay. You, but if they strike you down, you'll come back even stronger. Yes, I will. I will. <laughs> and I really appreciate that you went there, Stephen. I hey, mean, I've got, you know, I, I can I can play that game. Um, all right. R- real quick, before we get to our awesome guest this week, uh, just one quick note where uh, we normally have a more power user segment at the end of the show for our members. If you're not a member, you can sign up at relay.fm slash MPU. Uh, this week, though, we've decided we're going to have that segment as part of the public show as well to give everybody a bit of a taste of what we normally do in that segment. You know, we, gang, we really aim for these shows to be uh, evergreen, where, you know, you can listen to these interviews years later. If we talk about drafts, that should be good as long as drafts is around. We really work hard on that. But in more power users, Dave and I get to loosen up a bit and talk about more current things, what's going on. So this time we're going to talk about my iPhone 12 Pro. I've got it here on my desk and uh, get into that and why I didn't go with the Max, even though I told everybody who listens that I was going to do that. So keep an eye out for that at the end of the show. Yeah. And I've also had hands on with my daughter's iPhone 12 standard, I guess you call it. So I've got thoughts on that as well. Cool. Luke, um, we have been wanting to get you on the show for a long time. And uh, and Stephen, I, I feel like you Southerned his name. I, I just I, can't. I help. probably did. Yeah, but the uh, but I'm not no gonna. I'm French Canadian. I can't get it right. Luke, you're how kidding. do you pronounce oh, your wait, last First name? of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Did, you're French Canadian. Well, but on my mom's side, yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> I have this. I have the squinty eyes to prove it. Um, well, jeez. But, but either way, yeah, Luke uh, is a cognitive scientist and a Mac enthusiast, which it, to me is like a golden combination for the Mac power users. Uh, but before we get started, Luke, just kind of give us a little bit of your background. I mean, how did you get into Apple stuff and and become a cognitive scientist at the same time? Uh, well, my first degree was in psychology. And, um, you know, I taught myself to type on a typewriter and did my first year of essays a lot in the 80s <laughs> uh, with that. And then, of course, I recognized that uh, it, the uh, I'd, get, I'd have a competitive advantage if I had a Mac. Uh, and I did consider Windows, but I was immediately drawn to the Mac for reasons that are hard to remember, but it probably have to do with the uh, elegance and beauty and, and all that. So I, in my, by my second year, I had a Mac and I just uh, learned how to use it. And I uh, was not a computer scientist. Um, 
I, I just, uh, yeah, learned that it was a tool that could uh, extend my my productivity. I don't know that I was using the term at that time, but my performance. Um, and uh, and just kind of fell in love with it, actually. <laughs> so um, so that's how it started. Well, now, was that the original Mac or like in that first generation? I'm dating myself. It's a Mac Plus. And uh, I did, before graduating, get a Mac SE30, which I actually mm. lugged with me to Britain. Um, I did uh, my PhD first at Sussex University in cognitive science and then uh, at the University of Birmingham because my uh, supervisor moved up there and I decided to move with him. So I was hanging out with geeks there and I noticed they could do some very magical things and I was in awe of, you know, shell scripts, etc. So I learned with them, from them, um, and I, I, you know, it's, you, these were, they had Unix, we had Unix workstations at the labs and at home I'd work on my Mac. Um, so, so, and I tend to work at night, late into the night, um, with, uh, on the Unix workstations in a programming language called POP11, which is actually quite conducive for thinking about the mind and also for, um, productivity because it's so extensible. Uh, you know, I didn't hear anything you said cause you said SE30 and that's the one that got away from me <laughs> and I'm just sitting here thinking about it. Stephen, how hard would it be for me to get a working SE30 in 2020? I mean, they're definitely out there. The problem with especially compact Macs is that people want a lot of money for working ones now. Too much money in yeah. my estimation. But yeah, they're, they're definitely out there. You know, you need to you need to treat yourself sometime, David. Oh, man. I, I don't know even know where I'd put it. My mom's a geek and uh, she's um, kept <laughs> she's also a lawyer, by the way. She might have an SE30 and uh there you go. Who knows? Maybe she'll <laughs> want to get rid of them. She's kept her, she's got her Mac, the Mac Plus we used. And the, the question for Steven is, does she have, what's that, what's that one you want? Steven, the, the beta um, Mac that the one, what's that one? You know, the when they Lisa? switched over. Yeah. Yes. No, no, when they switched over to, um, um, oh. when they did the last processor upgrade. Oh, yes. The uh, Intel development transition kit. Yeah. I'm sure oh, his wow. mom has one of those. Yeah. You got one of those kicking oh, around. You, you need to, Put me and your mom together on a phone call, please. So, uh, but you you described that you went over to to um, the UK and got your PhD yeah. in cognitive science. Where you know how did that come about? What was the interest that that sent you down that path? I've always actually been a, a interested in the applied side, and I was on a clinical track or go intern in my head. Uh, but then I took a course on death and dying, and I found, oh my god, I don't think I can stomach this. They didn't. They forgot to say, by the way, we're going to train you to deal with your emotions. <laughs> but anyways, that was kind of a good thing because um, I I felt I discovered cognitive science in an epistemology course, actually a philosophy course. So just to backtrack, my first degree is in psychology, but I basically made it a cognitive science degree because the core cognitive science is a, it's an interdisciplinary computational approach to the human mind. So I took course in computer science and, you know, ma mathematical logic, uh, linguistics, lots of philosophy, neuroscience. Uh, those are the core disciplines of uh, cognitive science and, of course, psychology. So uh, my prof there who um, had done his PhD and uh, one of the most fantastic PhDs in AI that I've ever seen in computer vision at Edinburgh, which is basically where things were happening in Europe in the 70s, AI-wise, and it's still a, a hotbed of AI. Uh, he said, you know, you should really get yourself a Commonwealth scholarship and go study. I've got a couple of people to recommend to you, one of whom is Aaron Sloman. So I looked all over the world for places to do my PhD. Uh, I should say all over the Commonwealth um, and uh, got brochures, no internet in those days. But I really working with Aaron Sloman appealed to me. 
um, just an absolutely brilliant person. Um, and uh, so I chose to go work with him. Incidentally, he won the John Barwar, Barwise Award earlier this year, which is rec- recognition for, um, you know, it's an annual award for kind of a life ch- lifetime achievement in philosophy, one of the cognitive sciences. Anyway, so that's how I, I went there and I... Um, I had the time of my life and I decided that, yeah, cognitive science was for me. Uh, but one thing that I, looking back on it, I, I recognize is that applied interest that I had in clinical self-help, et cetera, remained. And that's, that's, that's how I ended up doing cognitive productivity stuff and thinking of it in terms, not only of just efficiency and even productiveness, but developing one's mind with knowledge and technology. Yeah, and that's the interesting intersection for your interview today is that you have all this science background, but you brought it to bear in how we use our computers. And we're going to get into it during the show, but you've written two books, you've developed an app, you had an email exchange with Steve Jobs at one point. I yeah. mean, you're a guy who's really trying to figure out better ways for us to use our technology. And I think it's fascinating. Um, at what awesome. point did you realize you were kind of into technology? Um, well, you know, it's interesting in general, being at, um, at, in the School of Cognitive Science, Sciences at Sussex, um, I had planned to use Smalltalk as a programming language. And my supervisor said, you know, he was trying to get me to use Pop11, the language they had, which was an AI programming language. And, you know, he made a flippant remark like, well, why'd you come over here to study in Britain if you're not willing to learn something new? <laughs> you know, our programming language. But I resisted because I'm, you know, a self-directed kind of person. But then I realized, wow, this would be really interesting to learn this programming language. The system's called Poplog and the language is Pop11. And uh, I got into it. And uh, it's basically, it's a, it's unlike other pro, a lot of other programming languages, at least. You know, some of them have step functions. Some of them are, you know, you just get to your asymptote very quickly and you're done. With Pop11, you just keep learning and learning and learning, both about tech and about the human mind. So I got hooked there. I, I got addicted to it, which is kind of ironic. Um, and I'm just, just to throw in a cognitive science concept is that that programming language, what, what's an AI concept too, uh, it's that programming language is exposes the virtual machine. You can extend the virtual machine in a language. So I got into doing that by the end. Um, and it turns out the virtual machine, the notion of a virtual machine is actually useful for understanding the human mind. And it tends to be neglected, be- partly because it's very complex. Um, yeah, and yeah, it's a historical fact that a lot of people haven't caught on to understand, you know, this mind-body dualism, which is not, which is a false dichotomy. But those kinds of questions can be resolved by looking at virtual machines. The mind actually contains virtual machines. I'm not talking about virtual reality, but virtual machines. I want to just ask about the virtual machine thing, though. So you say virtual machine. I'm thinking, you know, parallels install, right? I don't know what you're talking about. What What do you mean virtual machine? Okay, so virtual machine, the concept of virtual machine is, is let's look at it philosophically, it basically allows causation to happen at different levels that um, you can, that, where there can be communication compilation from one uh, level uh, to the other. So it's a fairly abstract, uh, it's a fairly abstract uh, concept. Um, a programming language like Java, which is very popular, uh, has a virtual machine, but basically it's given to you and you can't extend it. But what if you could just get in there and extend extend that that virtual machine? And yes, the uh, Parallels is a virtual machine and it's, it's there. It's built there for you. A virtual machine 
is a non-physical machine that emulates, that is like a physical machine. And as such, you can have causal events happening uh, in this machine. You know, we know for reg from regular machines, pulley systems, et cetera, oh, you got causality happening there. But it can also happen between these, these layers. The concept of layering in computer science is very important. Uh, for instance, we all use the internet protocol. That's actually a layered concept. You, you know, you know, you have your application layer and your uh, TCP IP layer, IP layer, um, the data link layer. Um, so, so layering is important. And in virtual machines, what you have is the, you know, you can actually create structures in the virtual machines that have causal effects below. So you want them ultimately to affect semiconductors and uh, you want sound to come out of your computers, but also levels above. So, so, so basically we can think about very complex mechanisms like the human mind in terms of virtual machines. And then you're bringing that back to how does the human inner mind interact with its technology? But you seem to have a general focus in the Apple community. How did that yes. come about? Well, it was my first computer system that I, personal computer system, computing system that I used. Now, I, I, even at Sussex, I, I used it for writing my thesis, et cetera. There's an app there called More2, which is kind of equivalent to uh, today's Omni Outliner, or analogous to um, and so the personal computing stuff was better on the personal computing side. So I, I kept that and I stayed with the Mac uh, platform for a long time until Windows 95 and they, you know, Apple kind of fell, Steve Jobs was gone. But when Mac OS came out, uh, Steve Leach, who is one of the many brilliant people I've had in my life who, you know, mentored me, helped me along the way, is just brilliant uh, software architect, um, said, hey, Mac o you know, Apple's come out with Mac OS. You got to try this. This was like 2002. Mm -hmm. So I, I looked at it and said, okay, I'm in. So from 2002 onwards, but I had used Linux and still used it. You know, I kept using it. I was using Windows. So I became a, a Windows power user. Um, but I, you know, when Mac OS came out, I said, oh my goodness, we've got the Unix toolkit with a beautiful graphical user interface. I'm in. And I, in those days, in the early days of Mac OS, I'd use the command line a lot more than I do now. Um, people sure. like Brett Terpsbrough are still digging in there and I'm happy that it's there. And I sometimes do, you know, use the command line. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I just fell in love with it. it is, it's beautiful. It's the next, I had heard about next, but we, I hadn't really ha had a hands-on experience with next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not many people did, which was their yeah, problem. That was the problem. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. It is interesting to hear that. I think that that is true for a lot of people who were, maybe in the Mac in the early days, or maybe I never looking at the Mac, but when Apple launched OS 10 with Unix underpinnings, I think that brought a lot of people's attention back to the Mac, right? Yes. It brought a lot of very interesting people. Um, I'm not trying to flatter myself, but in other people, <laughs> not me, interesting people to the Mac platform. And really it was a switch. And I was, um, I started working at Simon Fraser university. I had this startup concept in 2001 because my, Two of the startups that I was a founding employee at had gotten acquired. And then one of them went through rounds of layoffs because of the dot-com crash. And uh, so I had a six-month golden handshake uh, opportunity, really. I said, like, well, this is great. So I said, I'd been wanting to and thinking about starting my own, you know, doing my own startup. I had been at founding employee, but not the you know founder with the founding ideas. Um, so I had been thinking for years about doing um, cognitive science applications. I had a lot of concepts in my head. Um, and I ran them by some business people who had done one of the companies, which is called Abatis Systems. I gave them four of my business proposals and asked them which ones they thought were interesting. And uh, one of them had to do with what I'm doing now. I 
code name for it was Lakatos after a guy called Imri Lakatos. Yeah, so I had I went to Simon Fraser University. I contacted many people, and a, a prof at Simon Fraser University was one of them. So I wanted to start this business, but not do it by myself. I'm a team player, and uh, it turned out that everybody else wanted to get regular jobs. So I thought, oh, that's a shame. But a guy, at, uh, a professor at Simon Fraser University, mailed me back, and he said, "Hey, do you want to meet with me? I've got this project, this educational project that's aligned with the kinds of things you mentioned in your email." Um, so I, I I met with him. I had another job opportunity at another young Canadian company that ended up doing phenomenally well. I didn't take that one, but I wanted to follow my passion at this point because the other two tech startups were, you know, one was semiconductors, the other one was embedded systems. I learned a heck of a lot there, uh, but they weren't, you know, doing psychology. So, Mm -hmm. so I ended up joining that project and I suggested a big, um, a generalized version of the learning toolkit they were uh, developing at the time. They had stat study. I said, well, let's do a general toolkit where you can learn anything with, um, at the time, we were using Mac technology, uh, which we continue to use, but anyway. Um, so so I joined that project, and I worked with him for, uh, we worked till 2009. We got huge grants, uh, biggest grants probably in Canada, maybe in the world, to develop self-regulated learning environments. Um, so that's that allowed me to think for a long time and deeply about uh, using tech for learning purposes. I mean, I had been doing it before, but now I was being paid to do it. So this was great. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Mailbrew. Mailbrew allows you to get a daily digest of everything you need to stay up to date with technology, your favorite topics and websites, creators you love, and more. I've been using Mailbrew for a couple of weeks now. It was really great. I could go in there and plug in what I wanted in my morning email, set the time I want to get it. And so now I don't have to go check a bunch of different places. Mailbrew has brought all those things together in my inbox for me. If you're like me and you scroll feeds all day and struggle with information overload, you got to try this. It just takes a few minutes to create a personal daily digest with things like the best wisdom from Twitter, great insights from Reddit, the latest from your favorite blogs and YouTubers, and even hacker news and many other sources. It's kind of like a new take on RSS with more sources and an innovative way of reading and consuming information on your schedule instead of getting lost in the constant flow of news. You should try it for yourself and see how much time it can save you. So sign up now for a free 30-day trial at mailbrew.com MPU to get an exclusive 30% off if you decide to upgrade. That's mailbrew.com MPU for a 30-day free trial and 30% off when you upgrade. If you're overwhelmed with all the news coming into your phone, to your computer, Mailbrew can help solve that. Once again, mailbrew.com slash MPU to set up your own personal daily digest. Our thanks to Mailbrew for fixing my information diet and for supporting the show. Now, Luke, one of the things we talked about in preparing for today's show is your idea of effectance, and that's E-F-F-E-C-T-A-N-C-E. Explain the concept and kind of the history behind it and how that is, is kind of key to some of the stuff you're doing. Oh, right. Thanks for asking about that. So effectance is motivation for competence. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a concept, it's a term that was coined by uh, Robert White at uh, Harvard University in the 1960s in response to Freudianism and other, you know, psychological theories of motivation that weren't up to the task. And what he noticed was that people and children in particular, they have this inherent motivation to develop competence. Um, and he called that effectance. 
And uh, that I encountered that concept while doing my PhD thesis, which was on goal processing and autonomous agents. It was very much cognitive science AI. Anyway, so that concept always stuck with me. And uh, when I began, div- you know, uh, really building my own theory, I, I knew I needed to bring that in. And so motivation for competence is is super important and interesting. And it basically, from my perspective, it, what it does, is it defines the the audience. I develop products scientifically and in terms of software uh, concepts, et cetera, for um, people who want to become more competent. So I think that intersects very well with Mac power users. Um, I later learned that it's, you know, that it's a very big dimension of variation um, because it's, it's effortful. So that's that. Effectance is that in a nutshell. I've modernized the concept a little bit, um, noting that, um, you know, the that drive for competence is not necessarily explicit. It's not always, it's not as if we're waking up every day saying, hey, I want to be a more competent person. There's this really interesting concept. Again, it's an AI concept of architecture-based motivation. So the human mind has an architect architecture. So your software developers will know about software architects and software architecture. So the mind has an architecture too. And, and it basically, <laughs> human minds seem to be developed, seem to have these mechanisms that just spontaneously generate motives that when pursued make us more competent. So if you look at kids playing, they're not sitting there saying, you know what, I really want to improve my skills at block building. So I'm going to do this, that, and the other. That's not what they're doing. They're just, you put them in front of blocks and they will naturally want to play. And it, but play from an evolutionary perspective, you know, why do they want to do that? Well, clearly play is there for developing mental capacities and socialization, becoming um, better social beings and things like that. So effectance then is is something we all have to a certain degree. Um, and it is something that can, when you realize, well, I've got that, you can actually then tap into it. And it basically, that's what makes the difference between two different people of the same IQ, for instance. Okay. So IQ is, fi- is a fixed quantity. You can't really change that very much. But if you have high effectance, basically what you do is you bootstrap yourself. So again, computer science concept, you bootstrap yourself to, you know, in a sense, create better and better software for your mind, which David Perkins, again, at Harvard, Harvard uh, calls uh, mindware. I like that concept, mindware. When, when you shared that with me, it really resonated with me. And it reminded me of when I was, I mean, I'm old enough that I read the Stephen Covey books when he released them. Yes. And yes. the last step in the book was always, I think it was the seventh step was sharpen the saw. And as someone who yes. does carpentry, um, that really connected with me. It's like, yes, of course, if you spend time getting better at doing the things that you need to do, then everything gets easier. And I never understood why that was like the last thing he mentioned, like an afterthought. And then yes. over the weekend, I, I I opened your book in like the very first chapter. You did you had the same criticism. And it, it feels to me like a lot of the things you're doing and the things you're working towards are helping people sharpen the saw, help, helping you know work on that effectance skill that helps them across the board. And to me, that's kind of the goal of this show too. So I, I'm so pleased that you uh, could give us some time to talk about this because um, I feel like this is a very common issue a lot of us face. Yes, and if I may interject, I think that, that really hits the nail on the head. Um, First of all, the Covey books, I too, I read them a long time ago and I reread them and they're, they're, they're interesting and important. They're great books. I like the fact that it's principle oriented. He talks about being a principle centered person. 
And I think that's important. Um, and yeah, so basically you can see my work as zeroing in. It's a deep dive into one part of sharpen the saw. So in the sharpen the saw principle, he's got a bunch of, you know, you know, sections. And one of them is like reading. So I basically went in there and I said, okay, reading, we can generalize that now to information processing. For instance, your listeners are listening to this podcast. They're processing. They're not reading this. They're processing this. The information's coming in. And, uh, and, and I want to bring cognitive science to bear. So basically, I'm into integrative cognitive science and also design-oriented. So integrative means it's not just about the dry aspect of the human mind. Because when you talk about cognition, classically going down, it goes back to the Greek philosophers. It's about thinking maybe, and perception, memory. But there's way more to the human mind than this. And if you look at what, you know, the mission of cognitive science is, it's actually more, it's about the entire mind. The core metaphor is information processing. So that's, yeah, so I'm into deep dive into sharpening the saw with technology, favoring Mac and, uh, you know, iPad and iPhone uh, technology and the ecosystems that are around it. And so once you settled on that, you had a lot of ideas of how we can use our Macs better and how the Macs can be designed to help us more. And so you contacted somebody at Apple, right? Yeah, that's right. So actually, I was affiliated with uh, a company called Sharp Brains, who do, they call it brain fitness, they call it cognitive fitness, even it overlaps with cognitive productivity. So um, I, I actually pitched, we all knew that Apple was coming out with a tablet in early 2010, okay? And Microsoft had produced their joke, I mean, uh, of, you know, remember <laughs> that? I can't remember what it was called. It had two sides and a button in the middle. Actually, they revived that. I can't believe it. But anyway. Um, what was that called, Stephen? Do you remember that one? That oh, uh, Courier. Ah, uh, okay. Courier. Unfortunately, it doesn't ring a bell. My memory dropped that one. But I don't think it ever shipped. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know, I mean, it was a joke. They were just, they knew that Apple was coming out with something. And they tried to distract, you know? Um, so so I, I've been in this space now for about 10 years almost. And I I thought, okay, I, I, so I pitched to the Sharp Brains. I said, okay, let's do something fun. I'll write an article before they announce their tablet saying, here's the requirements for this thing from a cognitive fitness perspective. Now, they rebranded that to brain fitness because that's their thing. Um, and then after they announce it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this, this, this keynote that Steve Jobs said he'd do on, I think it was January 24th, 2010. I'm going to watch it, or maybe that's not the date, but anyways, I'm going to watch it in deep detail and then i'm going to write an assessment of okay how well does it compare to the call to the um, requirements that i put forth and i did that i saw i was really really amazed by what they showed um i watched that that demo over and over like frame by frame almost um and then um i wrote my my response which was quite favorable for sharp brains and i said you know here's a few things that uh, apple you know that maybe they can do better and the big idea was they've First of all, I was surprised. I actually didn't know it would be what it was. It was such a beautiful Apple-like simple idea. Let's, you know, in a sense, and people say it critically, oh, let's take the iPad and make it, the iPhone and make it bigger. But, oh my goodness. I mean, what E equals MC2 is also quite simple. So it was a, they took this. I thought, oh my, why didn't I see this coming? This, of course, it has to be this. It was a beautiful device. I loved it. And I thought, you know, it's got, it seemed that they could grow into the kinds of things I wanted, Okay. Um, so I wrote to Steve Jobs after that. It had because the, the iPad had not been favorably received by everyone in the technical community. So I, I sent Steve an email saying, you know, I saw your presentation. I loved it. And I said something like, you know, I think there's a few things it could do even better. And then I offered to, you know, fly out to California or whatever to um, meet with him or a few possible arrangements. 
one of which was a write a white paper for you, you know. Um, and he wrote back to me, you know, he was a man of few words, and uh, from my perspective anyway, and he said, you know, send me a white paper on it. And oh my goodness, <laughs> I got an email from Steve Jobs. Said, okay, I said, I will do that. And then I, I, I gave myself a deadline. I said, I'll give you one in a week. And I, I basically wrote, it was an over 30 page white paper. White papers are not supposed to be long. There's requirements for white papers. I violated them. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, I sent him a 34 page, you know, basically here's what the Mac ecosystem could look like. I didn't stop with the iPhone or the Mac. It was, here's what, you know, but it did focus actually mostly on Mac OS. And I actually, I, I've never said this publicly, I don't think, but um, I actually named, you know how they used to name their operating systems after cats. And I said, you know, Following this, I recommend, and it was actually the title, I think, of this white paper was, you know, the Mac OS Dolphin. So I said, you know, switch to dolphins. They're much smarter than cats. Anyway, so that was that was my, my, um, my that was part of my exchange with Steve. I waited a bit. He did reply. Of course, he had cancer and there was all these things. And he's the CEO of Apple. <laughs> I'm, you know, so he did reply. So I was getting impatient. So I, was, I, I did something dumb. I actually mailed him back and said, you know, uh, I haven't heard back from you. Just wondering if you're gonna you know god give you a timeline for responding so that i can know when to whether to move on them myself you know and uh he he actually responded he said we have no interest and my heart was broken um but uh i had that 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 interaction and i i would hope that that uh, it was well received in some ways over there so so that was the interaction with uh, with steve jobs i basically decided at that point I said okay well i think what i'll do is i'll take this white paper turn it into a book <laughs> You know, and because um, I couldn't do all the software myself. That's why I got in touch with Apple. I thought I can't do these all these things myself. I'm just myself. And um, but I actually decided to, uh, like I said, write a book about this and to uh, and the book you can. It was kind of funny. The books are a bit of a wink. The cognitive productivity books. The first one in particular, it if you the one way to read it is here's here are functional specifications for the software that we need. You know, because Apple, the Mac OS and so on, um, you know, our tool, physical and, and software tools, they're great, but you kind of have to shoehorn cognitive productivity workflows into them. They're not really designed, you know, for that. Steve Jobs says Apple's at the, it's the intersection of, you know, humanities and science. Well, what about cognitive science? Science is not, cognitive science is not actually humanities. So I tried to do with cognitive science in that intersection. So you can read it as a functional spec or collection of specs for what we need. Um, and we actually, you know, I, I got a, a sole proprietorship called Cogzest, which then spun off Cogsiaps. We did um, uh, a product. We did various products, actually, in-house. We prototyped products, and we got towards. We were going to do a productive practice app. We, we, we were along the way to doing that, and then we actually decided to do something else called Hook, which we might, which we might uh, talk about. Um, yeah, so we're, that was we're going to get to that, definitely. My interactions with Steve Jobs and how it it was very helpful for me on my, on my, on my path. Well, I mean, this really talks to me. I mean, lately I've been doing these presentations on what I call, um, you know, um, contextual computing, which is kind of the same yes. thing, really. It's just, the idea is when you sit down at the technology, how do you get from concept in your brain to action as fast as possible? Because computers are great, but they're also interruption machines. And yes. if you need to, you know, open apps and navigate folders and do things, there's 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 an increasing likelihood that you will get distracted along the way. And yes, you've absolutely. kind of taken that 
to a new level. And you've got two books, and I recommend people read yeah. these. I'll tell you my favorite one is your more recent one. So the first one is Cognitive Productivity, uh, but they're both good. And the second one is Cognitive Productivity with Mac OS. So, of course, that one really resonates with me. And and in them, you you start going through, you know, this mental process and what's the science behind how our brains work when we sit behind a computer. And I'm just not aware of anybody else ever tackling this before. Well, that's interesting. Thanks for uh, kind of putting that all in context. And when I saw your stuff on contextual computing, I said, okay, he's got it. Uh, this is really cool. And, uh, I, you know, I'm delighted to be on the show. Um, so um, there, you know, books, books appear in conversations with previous authors. They're, they're a conversation with your reader, but they're also very much a conversation with previous authors. So this book is part of a conversation that involved um, uh, Mortimer Adler, who wrote How to Read a Book. And he's actually the one, you know, just, I love meta, circular things, strange loops. He's the one who made that point to me anyways, or that I, I got it from him, that books are conversations sure. between authors. So he wrote How to Read a Book. But in those days, there was no cognitive, cognitive science who just started. He knew nothing about it. And, uh, and tech was just IT. There was no personal computers. So, so I, so that's cognitive productivity is part of that is saying, okay, how do we do how to read a book, which actually had a huge impact on me, my own reading and delving, et cetera, is affected by that. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the cognitive science bore out many of the things he suggested and some of the most influential books in educational psychology actually refer to him on, on reading. Um, so there was that, of course, there was a Stephen Covey book that I mentioned. So sharpen the saw. And then, uh, David Allen came out with Getting Things Done. That was part of the conversation. And I read that book and I thought, well, this is super interesting. He's proposing all kinds of stuff. But um, I also felt um, it wasn't inscribed in this conversation of knowledge intense books. Um, and it dealt with general productivity, not, not, um, not cognitive productivity. Cognitive productivity is all about what we were saying. is using knowledge as an input to get all kinds of outputs, building products, solving problems, um, and also developing ourselves. Um, and, and kind of meta-effectiveness, we haven't mentioned that yet, but that's the loop you go through when you become better at doing these things. Effectance is the motivational part, but there's other stuff. So that came out. Then a book by Nicholas Carr came out called The Shallows, which a lot of your listeners will know. And it basically was a doomsday book about tech. Oh my goodness, we're, our brains are being rewired. That's we're becoming stupid people because of all these distractions. So that I saw is, you know, there's naive optimism out there, but there's also naive pessimism, right? And after Carr's book, a lot of authors responded to that. Uh, Cal, Newport, uh, Cal Newport responded with deep work, whether he referenced it or not, I can't remember. There's Clive Thompson, who's also Canadian. He's a journalist. I think he's living in New York. He's written, uh, smart. he wrote Smarter Than You Think as a response to uh, not David Carr, sorry, it's Nicholas Carr. David Carr was a New York Times journalist. Clive um, Thompson wrote um, uh, Smarter Than You Think. And that was a very good book. That was a, I, I, I consider that as a very good book, applicable book to the, a good response to David Carr. Deep Work came out and, um, you know, my book came out. So uh, my book came out more or less at the same time as, uh, as, uh, as um, Clive Thompson's book. Um, and we over intersected but of course i had the, i was doing it from cog side perspective he was a science journalist um so that's the conversation uh that led to uh that led to uh cognitive uh, productivity 
This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. Stop drowning in email. Go to SaneBox.com slash MPU to get a $25 credit off any plan. SaneBox is an email service that can attach to your email account, and it works with just about any kind of account, Gmail, IMAP, whatever, and it just works. You don't have to move to a special service, and once you've attached SaneBox to your email account, it does a bunch of work in the background for you to save you time. For instance, it learns what email is important to you and filters out what isn't. It's also great at filtering. The idea of SaneBox is just to put the most important email in your inbox. The rest of it gets filtered down. Uh, some goes to the Sane Later folder, which is email that you want to look at, you know, maybe once a day, but you don't need to spend your whole day keeping track of. They also have the Sane Black Hole, which you can unsubscribe with one click. So if you get an email and you never want to hear from that person again, you put them in the black hole and they are gone. With SaneBox, you have the ability to snooze email, so you can put it off a day or a week or however long you want, and then it'll come back to you later. Sane reminders are an amazing feature. When you send an email out to somebody that you expect a reply on, you can carbon copy or blind copy it to a certain increment of time. I usually use one week, so it would be bcc to one week at SaneBox.com. Then after a week, if that person hasn't replied to me, SaneBox gives me a reminder and it says, hey, this guy didn't reply to you. What are you going to do about it? So I can send that person another email or make whatever decisions I need. It's just a much more efficient way of tracking emails that require replies than any other way I've ever tried. But SaneBox is more than filtering. With SaneBox, you can automatically move your attachments to Dropbox and other cloud services. And they have various pricing plans starting as low as $4 a month. Best of all, you get a 14-day free trial and go to SaneBox.com slash MPU to get a $25 credit on any plan. Mac Power users, listeners love SaneBox. I do too, and I bet you will as well. So go to SaneBox.com slash MPU to get that $25 credit. Thanks again to SaneBox for helping keeping my inbox sane and their support of the Mac Power users. Then, then you you wrote a second book, um, the Cognitive Productivity with Mac OS book, and the um, and in this book, I feel like you've got a lot more into the fundamentals of how Mac users can apply the science to their daily work. What was the motivation for that one? Your book was the motivation. Paperless, actually, uh, I did the first book, and it, it the first book was very ambitious. Um, you know, I still think the first book has some interesting parts for at least the first chapter and the third chapter. The third chapter talks about the problems and opportunities that we face as knowledge workers. So I think it will resonate with the audience. Um, and when I read Paperless, that was such a beautiful book. The book's platform had come out of that, and then where Apple you know, was delivering on, um, actually it was called iBooks then, I think. Yeah, it was delivering on what part of the promise of, you know, that we could see when we when the iPad first came out, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, heady days, heady days. Yeah, but paperless, I saw it was beautiful and I showed it to a lot of people. And I said, this, you know, this this is this is telling people exactly, uh, first of all, it's a beautiful book and it's very practically helpful. My book does have a, I mean, the second part of my book is deep dive into the science of it, which many people can skip. Then the third part is actually quite applied, but it's text. And I, and I said to people around me, this is, text is not enough for this. We really need to do demonstrations. So your book was, uh, was a blessing. 
It was also a curse, actually, because it was, I found out it was a lot of work to do the kind of book you did. Um, and I decided not to use um, their platform, um, their books, books, iBooks author, right? Because um, yeah. I wanted to write in Markdown. Um, and I did, I, I, anyway, so, so that's, that's why I did that second book was to have a book that was very applied, uh, that had hands on, you know, screencast demos which in my case you click on the links in the book and it takes you to youtube um i know i noticed you've you've moved to a different platform where they can the book is actually online to begin with which i think is a great way to do it um so so that's that's why and it was also an opportunity to repackage and extend because we're always building right my my understanding into 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 something that was more uh digestible so it's seven principles uh, for getting smarter with knowledge is is the subtitle in it. So we've got your seven principles, and 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 the getting getting smarter is an important. You know, it's basically that's that's the kind of self help version of meta effectiveness. You know, with what with knowledge because knowledge is 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 the input. Yeah, I mean the whole book is effectiveness. I mean it's it's about yeah getting getting better using the tools, which is what we try to cover here. And there's a lot to the book, and um, I'd recommend people check it out. And uh, Luke did make videos. I know I, I do know that's a little hard sometimes, but you did a great job. And oh, so you. as you're reading through the book, you can click a link. It'll take you to a YouTube video, and he'll show you how he's putting his folder system together or whatever principle he's trying to demonstrate. And I, Luke, I think you did a great job with that. Well, thank you very much. I even I what made it even better was I reference I think I've got a link there to your PDF pen screencast one of your screencasts I put a link right in the book to that thing I'm not going to reinvent this David Sparks has already done it click here <laughs> yeah <laughs> so many things in my life are summed up in that sentence um <laughs> what are some of the sort of the the nuts and bolts things that uh people who are interested in this book what are some things they can expect there kind of down on on the the ground level Okay, so there's there's seven principles. The first ones are high level, basically emphasizing knowledge is the first principle. Uh, it's um, uh, lead yourself with knowledge. The second one is managing your cognitive life m- uh, mindfully. So it's got tips about, you know, the concepts are the co- tips, conceptual tips, but also practical tips for uh, organizing your information, organizing your tasks, and relating to your time and your to your attention so that's that's those are the first principles of uh, kind of self-governance um after that we uh the book dives into three practical principles uh that are information processing principles how to assess information you know that's the key thing we were talking about uh context and information comes your way or some sometimes we just need to be in the mode where we're not going to be distracted by information but other times we are in discovery mode or open to discovery uh, or we're just assessing something that's come our way. And at that point, we need a framework for um, for assessing the information. So for information that comes our way. So I've, I've done that. Um, I've, I've developed a framework for that that um, involves assessing the caliber of the information. So the quality of the information, like the veracity and the authority, et cetera. Well, one of the things I like the way you handled this, Luke, is... I feel like there are a lot more mediums to get information now than there ever have been. Um, you know, historically you would read a book or you'd read a, a paper or a PDF. Um, yeah. And 
even in legal research I do now, there are videos you can watch and there are, there's just all these different sources of good information now. And as users, how do we analyze that? How do we get the key points out of it? I mean, with a book, you know, you wrote in the margin or you highlighted or whatever, but now there's so many different ways to do it. And I I feel like your, your book did a good job of kind of addressing that problem, even down to, trying to figure out the nouns and the verbs. I mean, it's easy with a book. I'm reading a book, I've read a book, or I'm going to read a book, you know. But with all these different mediums, even those nouns and verbs don't work anymore. So uh, I thought you did a good job on that. Thank you. Thank you. And it, you know, it addresses challenges that we all face. You know, I was building this, you know, looking at the literature, and as a person trying to use the literature to become a better reader, become a better um, you know, to do this effectance thing. Um, yeah. So, and there's tips even going down to text expanders and, and, and categories, suggesting categories that we can use to assess information. Each domain has categories. Like as a lawyer, you'd have certain things that you're looking for, like maybe contradictions. I don't know. Um, and when you're reading nonfiction, when you're reading scientific stuff, you're looking for the thesis, key terms, etc. So, uh, you know, I propose ways. Well, first of all, I, I highlight those important concepts then I say, you know, we need ways of identifying that information and not just highlighting text. So this was this kind of a cognitive productivity thing with the tech is that we have to work around is existing software. You know, at best, it lets you highlight text. I mean, it's amazing that Safari doesn't let you highlight text right now, you know, like, but even if it did, that would not be enough. Color schemes don't map directly onto categorical schemes that we need to use. And we know that good students and because most of the research in education is actually on students, good students relate to information with categories that are helpful. Like, just here's one tip. It's if you can systematically identify the information that you don't understand, that will put you way ahead of, of um, you know, it's competitive, way ahead of your peers. You have two people reading the same text. They might end up having the same understanding of the base level of the text. They would you would not be able to distinguish their understanding of the material on a test. But if you ask the students, what didn't you understand? Well, your A plus student is going to say, oh, I didn't get A, B, C. Your B student might not have such a great um, understanding of what they didn't get. Now, if we have that conceptually in our heads, that's immediately it's a huge boost. Then if you have a system that allows you to systematically annotate text or vid- or take notes about videos, etc., that focuses on knowledge gaps to the extent that you want to bridge them, you're going to, this is, you're going to bootstrap yourself. That's, we talked about effectance earlier. That's actually the motivational part. What I'm talking about now, the skills, it's actually technically called fluid expertise, not my term, but that's the the abilities, the skills, the hacks and strategies that we use to, to get better with uh, knowledge. Well, I, I just think that the intentionality that you preach is just so important. I, just from observing myself, it is amazing how much of my day and my time is run on autopilot and like the gray matter between my ears doesn't seem to be in control at all. And, um, we are challenged, you know, and, and, you know, CogSci gives you kind of a context to say, okay, let's see if we can remove some of the barriers to let people actually be more intentional and get their work done. And the fact that you apply it to the Mac, of course, it's just like right in the sweet spot for us. Ah, oh, it's fun. It is the best platform still. 
<laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> Mine too. Yep. <laughs> no argument here. <laughs> so, so you break it down, and then, uh, then at the end, you have a section called Principles of Mastery. Can you kind of explain what that is about? Yeah, that, you know, in a sense, there's some, yeah, that, um, that, that is a challenge in a sense t- to status quo. Um, be, um, there's a couple of principles that are um, oriented towards getting from superficial acquaintance with information and temporary understand temporary I call it comprehension rather than understanding of information to to mastery. So the thing is that when you read, even if you carefully read, deeply read material, it doesn't tend to stick for various reasons. One of which is evolutionary. The evolution has designed us, you know, in a sense, to um, to know what to learn. You take in, you know, even pre-tech times, the brain, you know, our ancestors' brains were faced with a lot of information. When you look at it from an information complexity point of view, there's tons of information coming, tons, you know, gigabytes of information coming your way. And the brain has to make a decision every hour, but particularly every night, it's got to say to itself, what information that I processed today that came in my way today, you know, was relevant and worth remembering and worth mastering, let's say. Okay. It's not, obviously it's not saying that explicitly. It's, it's that again, it comes back to the architecture base. The software mechanisms are built to address those questions. So, um, so when you think about what hacks might it use, what, 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 what tricks might it use? Well, I, Propose something called the heuristic relevance signaling hypothesis in the first book. And that's the idea that, well, first of all, it's a heuristic, meaning it's not algorithmic. The brain evolution is just into very sophisticated hacks. Um, and, and that what signals relevance really is that the cortex has asked for information that it wants to use. So as a musician, you know that in order to learn a piece, typically you, one needs to practice the piece. You know, even to learn the basics, you need to practice the basics. So basically, that's signaling to the brain that, oh, this must be important because the cortex, which is the front part of your brain that, well, I'm talking about the, the, the frontal cor- prefrontal cortex, is, 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 is calling. It's making demands on memory, which involve, by the way, the hippocampus part of the brain that actually does the, the routing of information requests to memory stores, right? So it's saying, oh, this piece of information, I want to use it. That must so when that happens, when you try to retrieve information, you're 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 signaling to the brain this is important, this is relevant of everything that I've processed today. Actually, all that's really relevant is you know ABC that I've tried to retrieve. So that being the case, and there's lots of research to support it. I I coined it, but I found that it was actually J.R. Anderson, who's a great cognitive psychologist, had actually developed this concept and demonstrated it mathematically in his, in his books in the eighties and early nineties. Um, so that, 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 uh, that principle really, um, it, it, it drives, uh, it drives how the brain works unconsciously and it can be leveraged. So the bottom line is, and good students know this, if you want to learn something, you'd better practice it. So they do things like flashcards. So I looked at this body of research. I've been into this since I was a teenager, this whole I discovered by happenstance because I was actually a party animal as a high school student, um, mostly interested in other things but academia. So I was interested in the mind and physics and chemistry didn't resonate. But I got interested in history and I thought, 
wow, I really want to do well. I really enjoy this. I'm going to take this course, though this professor is rather frightening. Um, so I took this high school history course, and somehow I said to myself, and I will do well. So I decided to do well. And I uh, basically, that meant get 100%. And, and I'm competing with, as a private Catholic school, pretty good school, so competing with a lot of smart kids. Um, so so what I, so I don't really know how I happened on this, but I thought, okay, well, the way to um, make sure that I do well in the exams, not that I just want to do well at the exams, but I also wanted to do well, um, was to basically anticipate every question that might be asked, write it down, practice answering it. And that turned out to be very helpful. It basically got me to, you know, and the final exam was 105 questions. I got them all right. That's not saying anything about me. It's saying things about how brains work. It's that if you can go through this loop of, of identifying the relevant information to master, then developing questions and, and, and answers about it, it's, you can bootstrap your learning. So, But how does one do this in a productive way? So I, I named the book Cognitive Productivity because I knew this has to be efficient and it has to be effective and people are already very busy. There's no time for extra activities, which is one of the reasons why we ended up not pursuing this as a software venture because I thought I've got to change culture in order to get this idea to take off, you know, get people to do something like flashcard learnings. They're not, they're not going to do this. This is effortful and it's hard to convince people of payoffs when you're a small player. So we decided not to not to pursue that. And I got in touch with the Yankee developer instead, and he wasn't very responsive. I've been in touch with Remnote. We'll talk, maybe talk about them later. They've got a basically flashcard apps, but flashcard apps are are they're they're not enough. You have to shoehorn your process into this. Productive practice is about technically it's called test-enhanced learning, deliberate practice for it's also called deliberate practice for people who know that. Uh that area of cognitive science which malcolm gladwell popularized in outliers you know and um it you know there's just memory effects and the testing effects so huge bodies of research uh in psychology well i i do think there's real merit to putting things in front of your eyeballs again to reinforce it yes um, i recommended on the show last month this readwise.io service Yes. And what it does is it takes your highlights from Instapaper and Kindle and whatever other places you read it. It works with most of them. And it it puts them together, just your highlights. But it also, it sends you a daily email and it, it feeds back to you five to seven of your highlights. And going through them, you have a chance to favor them or tag them. But I just find that daily practice is basically a flashcard service, really, when you think about it. But that daily practice of here's five things that I thought were important enough to highlight at some point in the last 10 years. Why don't I look at them again and see how I'm doing? And um, I, I do think there's something to that. And uh, I was kind of glad to see there's some science behind it. Yeah. Yes. And a key distinction, however, so that's, we call it technically that's in, in educational psych, it's called review. So that's the rereading part is helpful. It can prime the information, et cetera. The real magic actually comes not from rereading, but actually from interacting with question. I call them challenges to generalize them. Basically, where you'd be asked a question about, okay, well, um, um, could be anything. In my books, I talk about the bid, the bid concept. So it could be about a bid concept. Well, what is a bid in interpersonal relationships? So it's it's a little bit different from just rereading. Before seeing the answer, you actually call in it yourself, and that's when the brain says, you know, implicitly at night, probably, you know, the hippocampus says, hmm, that must be important. Not so much what I reread, because if you just reread, 
it's like the original thing, the original experience. So there's research by a guy called Rodiger and a number of other people pitting these things, rereading versus answering questions about the material without reference to it. So I actually have an app called Anki that I use, and I've got thousands of flashcards in there. And in my spare time, when I'm mobile, you know, I exercise, go up and down the stairs. <laughs> in you know, when I have a minute, that, you know, I use that time to to actually, rather than reread and consume more information, I answer questions about stuff. So if something's really important, and I think, okay, I actually want to be able to a remember and b really, it's about using. If I want to be able to use it, then I will put it in this system. And part of the benefit of this is that you formulate in your head the question questions about it. That is. That first, it's it's a way to do a triage. Most of the stuff you're not willing, one won't be willing to actually ask a question about. It's too much work to create a flashcard. But by doing that, by saying, yes, I will create a flashcard question, that, that's a way of, it's a process that gets you into really identifying what's what's useful. So I've got a, helpful to you. So I've got in my books, this, this kind of funnel. It shows at the top all the information you process, that that you you know, cross your way, you skim, you delve, which is the deep dive concept that I, you know, uh, for, and then you, what you will practice. Well, those are the knowledge gems. I call them knowledge gems or the bits that you really want to use. And those end up going in your productive practice thing. So it's not just about practicing writ large. It's specifically about deliberate practice in a technical sense of, of being challenged with the information and responding to it. This episode of MPU is brought to you by SyncUp a OneDrive podcast. It's so much fun to find new podcasts, and there are so many out there. A good one to check out is SyncUp. It takes you behind the scenes of OneDrive from Microsoft. So you can learn about how to connect files, share your documents, and work from anywhere. And you'll get to hear about the design and development side of things, too. Each show covers a dedicated topic, includes guest interviews, news and announcements, plus a special topic outside of the normal technology stuff. Just to give you an idea of what to expect, uh, one episode I really loved was talking about the history of OneDrive. You know, a lot of these tech companies, they don't like to talk about past products. They only want to look forward. So I found it really refreshing how they talking about coming from previous products, modernizing their technology, and getting OneDrive to where it is today. So go and listen to it now. Just search for Sync Up wherever you get your podcast. That's S-Y-N-C-U-P. Or just click the link in the show notes to go check it out. Our thanks to SyncUp and Microsoft for their support of this show and Relay FM. So, Luke, you had several ideas to bring cognitive science to the Mac, and you have released an app now. And we've talked about it on the show a few times, but explain to us what Hook is. Okay. So, um, Hook is uh, is an app that's designed to help you retrieve the information that's relevant to your current context. And it's one of several tools that are out there on the market uh, that address what I call the two-second rule, which is tightly linked, which addresses basically your concerns about, you know, staying in context. How do we get out of context? Well, one of the ways we get out of context is, you know, just information comes our way and, oh my goodness, then then you're gone, gone. oh, seductive email. And you've got tricks for avoiding those seductive emails. And so the two-second rule is, is about information retrieval. I put that in my surf. It's both in the attention principle of principle two, but it also shows up in 
surface, which is surface interacting with information. The surface part is actually getting the information you need. So if you're writing a paper, for instance, there's usually a collection of resources that are pertinent to the paper, PDFs, web pages, whatever. You don't want to be searching for that. I mean, you can, and you can use a tool like Spotlight, and you can use LaunchBar, and they're essential, and I use them, right? Uh, they involve typing. So where Hook is unique is that it allows you to link up information in multiple that are that may be in different apps. It doesn't have to be a file. It could be an OmniFocus project, uh, web page, an email even. They're pertinent to your current project, whether it's a in, taking information in if you're reading a book, well, you might want to consult other resources, or if you're creating a new artifact, a new podcast, an episode, or a new screencast or whatever, you know, creativity always involves many resources. We have to be able to navigate quickly between them, but you can't just put everything in the finder. Hmm. Why? Because for one thing, that same bit of information will be pertinent to another project, even if it's a file, and it might not be, but say it's a file, it's a PDF. Well, if you're an academic, your PDF should actually be in a software called Bookend, so something like Bookends, a reference manager. So immediately, your the information is all over the place. So what Hook does is it allows you to establish context by linking information um, together. Yeah. So that's Hook in a nutshell. So let's take an example of someone who is uh, working on you know, writing uh, an article. They have research on the web in PDFs and other documents. How would someone use Hook to kind of pull that stuff together when it's time to write? Well, for instance, I'm writing a paper and have been for a while on uh, sleep onset and insomnence, which is another one of my areas. Um, So I've got a folder set up for that. I've got a task paper project uh, uh, file for that. Um, And it's it's hooked up to um, a bunch of other things. Um, So um, you could, you bring up hook in the context of something like your folder or task paper document or an OmniFocus project, which I also use. And then you do, you copy a link to it, to this, to this, what may be the source. And then at the, on the destination side, you basically, uh, can hook to the copied link. And then the next time you bring hook on either side of the link, a hook is a bi-directional link, actually, you'll see a reference to the other. So that's one way to do it. Um, the, the more, the most fundamental, uh, um, uh, operation of hook is actually to copy a link to anything. So it's a new dance. Basically you can even use it in browser where you'd be copying links anyway. So in your Safari, you could just bring up hook and you do copy as link. And then you could paste that link wherever you want. Like hook is agnostic about your particular workflow. So if you're a person who likes to have all their links in, in say, uh, or some reference file or reference section, you can do that. Um, if you're writing a document, you could paste the links as like markdown comments to something where there's this information that's relevant to, you know, or the backing for what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's, um, yeah, you can have the links, the links are stored in the database. They can be bi-directional as hook hooks. Um, you can hook them to a key document that is acts as a hub. That's one way to do it. So your task paper file, when I'm writing, I have a number of, fo- of, uh, of, of, of files that I use. It's basically, I've created a template for it and I shared it in the book because I do it so often. Actually, there's two sets of templates. One are plain text. The other have Omni outliner files, files and like, but you know, you've got your, uh, the main thing is a, maybe a plan. There may be the document you're writing in. For me, it's, it's almost always Markdown these days. Uh, there's what I call an elements file, which is the rhetorical elements like the thesis and uh, the major 
major propositions, counterarguments, references. So I always have one of those. Um, uh, an outline. There may be an outline file. I often work from an outline first. Uh, I might have a spreadsheet or whatever. So that's the template. And with Hook, you could just drag and drop the temp all these files into a menu bar icon, and it'll link them all together. So then, in the context of one, you can get to the other. So basically, it removes the search part, so you can just bring up Hook in the context of one of your core documents and get to the ancillary documents, and through typing. So say I'm in my markdown document where I'm writing, I got to refer to my plan, what's my next action? So I bring up Hook and I type TAP, that's my abbreviation for task paper, and poof, um, I'm I'm immediately into my big to-do list basically for this. There's always a to-do list for a, a reasonably complex uh, writing or create other creating project, creative project. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, for me, Hook, there's kind of a couple layers to it. And Luke, you can correct me. But I mean, sure. I think the first layer to Hook is it's just a tool that can create a URL link to virtually anything on your Mac. Yes. And if you stop and think about that, that's something that we don't have. I'm guessing that's probably one of the things you wrote Steve Jobs about that we need. And we need the ability to jump from point A to point B without going through a bunch of hoops. And uh, you know, and some people would say, well, hey, I could put together a folder in Finder and just collect everything related to a project and that'd do the same thing, but it won't because uh, an example for me is uh, OmniFocus. I have an OmniFocus yeah. project that is not part of a Finder folder. Or um, as I go yeah. deeper down the Obsidian rabbit hole, I've got Obsidian yeah. pages set up for things and those are not yes. part of a folder. And so suddenly I've got these disparate places on my Mac where I want to get to stuff and using hook over the last six months that I've kind of really kind of dove into this app. Um, I have populated links all over my computer. So now if I go to an OmniFocus project, not only uh, there, there are links in the project description and I can click one button and yep. go straight to the obsidian file. I can click another button, and go straight to the active uh, Microsoft word document that is part of this project, you know? So um, it just gives you the ability to jump. And you didn't really describe that two-second rule, but but I know you told me offline. It, it means that from the time you have an idea to the time you're working on it should be about two seconds. And um, using Hook, I'm able to create these links. And that is, to me, almost the the the, 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 the app sells itself just on that level. That That's a key point. And uh... And it's it, you're absolutely right. There's two levels, and the copy link is the foundation. Yeah, and it's a, it's a basically it's a universe. It provides a universal copy link where you can copy link to anything that has um, an API that we can leverage behind the scenes for this. And often it's just if they do it well, we just pick it up automatically. They don't need to do anything special. Like Omni, the Omni Group apps were a delight. We just were able to get copy link to work out of the box. No special coding required but if there's uh if there is special coding required off we will go and do it sometimes the community does it for us sometimes it's a third-party app like trickster uh when he the trickster dev um uh, uh jacob uh gorbin when he found out about hook he went on a forum and he said oh it's like hook great app um here's some apple script for it to make it work so we built that right into hook after that another canadian by the way um so so yeah <laughs> the the um Plugs for Canadian. The um, yeah, the basic <laughs> operation being copy link. If there's Apple script for it, it'll 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 um, um, you know, if we can do it, we will we will give you your copy link. And if 
If the app developer doesn't, we actually have a template on our website that you can contact the developer yourself. Often we will have contacted them beforehand and say, you know, would you please add some, it could be AppleScript, JavaScript, we don't care, it could be the command line. It's automation is the key concept. It's not, you know, we know that AppleScript is not moving the way we want it to at Apple, at least the way we see it, but that's okay. It does a lot. And we're not married to AppleScript. Basically, the idea is any API, can, as long as they they expose the right things, we will we will adapt to that API and we'll make Hook work uh, with that uh, particular app. Yeah, and, and a lot of these apps do have URL embeds already where you can right-click on something and get an embed, but Hook just makes it easier, honestly. There's a keyboard shortcut and you can copy it not just as a link, but as a markdown link. And then that gets you to the second layer of hook, where it's it it looks like a launcher app, you know, like a Alfred or a launch bar, but it's not that. What it is is it's a launcher app that gives you a list of everything connected to that hook. So my earlier example of a project, I get to the OmniFocus hook, it shows me the file hook, it shows me the outline of the contract in an Omni Outliner file hook, it shows me the page an obsidian hook. So it just puts it all together for me. So I can very quickly, once again, following that two second rule. It's a, it's a fascinating idea. I, I can see why you initially would go to Apple with this, because I think if this was baked in the operating system, it would be so helpful to so many people, but you know, congratulations to you to figuring out a way to do it anyway. Thank you. And to Apple for having the hooks. So I did think, Oh my goodness, we just, we need Apple to do this. But then then I realized, oh my goodness, I think we've got the hooks. And I've got a co-founder, Brian Shi, a brilliant developer. And we basically worked on that. And actually, we, we re- reworked this a number of times using a number of different technologies. Um, so it was not, this was not an instant thing. Uh, but um, yeah, but the bottom line is macOS and developers have provided enough support for us to build this thing. And, and uh, you know, and if an app doesn't have the automation that we need, because sometimes they will have like the UI for it, but they won't put in the uh, automation like uh, Ulysses doesn't have an, the scripting for it. So we have to use screen scripting, which is not as not always reliable. Um, but, you know, it my, 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 my point to developers is this is a day's work like Jacob and so many other developers put in the Apple script that we needed, that our customers needed, their customers needed. And it's like a day's work. So it's not as if, you know, they have to do something very complex. And even if it's an Electron app, there's ways to do it. There's, I think it's to do number two do. I might be misremembering. Um, they have an Electron app. No, maybe it's it's some. I can't remember the particular app, but it's an Electron app. And he heard about Hook. He had requests for it, and he went ahead and he just did it. And it was like within a day or so, he's got his Electron app. You know, providing the automation hooks that we need. So, um, so yeah, it's entirely doable. Yeah, and, and there are other parts of Mac OS that I think I don't know how you would address them without Hook. And the primary one for me being the file system. Um, I maybe a, user, a listener knows how to do this, but I don't. Um, to get a URL link to a f- stored file on your Mac's hard drive. Um, um, but Hook does that it's, uh, very simply. And whether it's on iCloud or your native drive, and to me, that's key because a lot of the projects I do are native drive files, and yes. I do want them hooked. I, you know, I do want links to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can do that, and you can create a hook file, which is like an alias or a web location dot weblock file, the web location files. But unlike them, it's you know, well, weblocks are actually plain text too. But this a, a dot hook file is actually a it follows the Markdown philosophy. 
So if you want to, you can put that in your hard disk too, which is a, or in a, in a, in a folder, which is a, a, a markdown link. It's a plain text file with markdown link and you double click on it and it'll get you to whatever that markdown link points to. Well, it's a fascinating app. It took me a while to get it. You you sent me a beta early, and I didn't know who you were. And I'm like, I'm not going to install this app from some stranger that's going to like be looking at my whole file system. And then oh, yeah. I I found your book. And I'm like, oh wait a second, you know, <laughs> this yeah. guy's really knows what he's doing. And um and uh, since I kind of installed Hook, and I've now you know, I just think of it as just another piece of using my Mac. It, it really has helped. And I've always been a fan of these URL links, but giving me yes. another tool yes. to get even more links just improves the efficiency of that. Agreed. Um, and in terms of privacy, Hook does, we, we don't have a server that stores any of your information. You can use, you can sync with iCloud or whatever you want, but we don't have, we don't provide a service for, uh, you know, syncing ourselves. We, we just we provide the higher level service to a folder. We don't know what that folder is or whatever. So it's, it is uh, an entirely private app. Um, but, but it's yeah. smart enough. Like if I hook a file and then I move that file to a different folder, hook can still find it. And um, another power user use of hook for me is some of these, you know, if I'm ever linking to something that is sensitive, um, that link is not the file. You know, I, I played with Rome Research for a little while, and um, like I was putting some hook links in my Rome database, which was fine because even though Rome is a web service yeah. and someone could get to my my data in Rome, yes. all they would get is a hook link that that leads to a file on my computer. They would not be able to get to that file. Um, so, so it also kind of gave me a little bit of comfort in linking things that I otherwise wouldn't. So. It just, it's really a fascinating app. you got to kind of wrap your mind around it. But if you're interested in trying this contextual computing, if you if you want to live up to that two-second rule, uh, this is a no-brainer. Stephen, have you used it at all? Have you played with it? Yeah, I've been, I've been playing with it a good bit in preparation of this episode. And the, yeah, the ability to pull things that may be in DevonThink or on the web or just in a text file somewhere, uh, that really is powerful. And the thing that I, that I like about it is it feels incredibly native to the Mac. You know, sometimes we get into these utilities and like, Oh, don't, I don't know what's going on here. Um, but hook feels like a very Mac like utility. And I think if you're out there uh, and you haven't checked it out, it's well worth it. I, I particularly like it to solve the problem of I'm working on a project and I have these, resources scattered across a bunch of different places but because it's so flexible you could i mean you could almost use it for anything yeah like i feel like that would have been a good use for the podcast-a-thon with yeah. all the different resources you had yeah um luke do you have any any stories about how people are using it that surprised you the one thing that the, there's a topic i've got that's been kind of activated in my head as you've been speaking um which is maybe not a, so much a surprise but feedback that we have received which is something that hasn't come up yet explicitly in this conversation, is that uh, while your links are private, you can actually share some many of the links that Hook creates. I mean, obviously, if it's a web link, you can copy it with Hook very quickly mm -hmm. and share it with somebody. Well, obviously, somebody can click on that link. They'll see the same thing if all goes well. <laughs> you can also share links to Dropbox, to folders that are shared with others. So if you if we're all collaborating on something, we're sharing a Dropbox folder, for instance, I could, you know, it may be deeply nested, 
I mean, that's a problem that everybody faces. So we decided to cover that angle too, um, which also ends up being useful for the solo case as well. Is like we can create a link to something in a shared folder, and then you can send that to somebody, and they click on the link. And even though you're not syncing any databases together, based on the file name and other stuff, we're going to be able to hook should normally figure out what the target is. So when you click on that link, it will reveal it, or if your settings are to open it, it, it may open it. The other thing is mail. Um, I get a lot of feedback from people, um, including somebody who's now working with us, um, who discovered Hook, and I, I discovered her, and I thought, oh, you sound very interesting in terms of what you're doing. And uh, and now we're, she's working on her marketing side. And she just thought it was so magical to be able to click on these mail links. Um, and I think I think Brett mentioned it actually in July when you when he was interviewed on your podcast. So it turns out that emails have an RFC request for comment compliant IDs. They're there, even if they're not exposed. You know, and many apps actually have scripting or an API so that you can use them, but it's not exposed in the user interface so people would know. So Hook allows you to copy a link to an email. So I can send you a link to an email um, that uh, as long as you you have that email, uh, it, that you've received that email directly, so it has that ID, I can you know copy a link to the email and I can refer to a previous conversation we had like in 2016. And you click on that link. You don't have to search anymore. It's a two-second rule. So now, but this is social cognitive productivity, and it's easy for us to kind of miss that as as geeks because we're often solo oriented. Um, and and it's one of the reasons why I like to have um, these projects represent different people and different uh, men and women and different people and being involved. I'm very collaborative. I've got lots of projects going on uh, related to this. And anyway, so so is that the social aspect is is important. So I. Th- yeah, this can help. Uh, this addresses a two-second rule in the social context. Well, I, I want to just congratulate you because it's always great to see someone come up with a new idea on our software platforms that we love. And Hook is something, there's nothing else like it, and you you know brought life to it. And I know from talking to you that you have a lot of plans for the future for it, that you're looking to you know make it even easier for us to... Uh, use our monkey brains to get our work done. And, uh, and I appreciate all the effort you're putting into this. Well, your, your, your thank you means a lot to me. The Mac power user. Thank you is, uh, is, is a lot of, uh, reward for all the effort we put in over the years. Thank you. This episode of the Mac power users is brought to you by indeed. Go to indeed.com slash MPU to get a free $75 credit to boost your job post. One of the greatest challenges we all face is taking all the information available to us and knowing where to focus. This happens in all areas of life and work, including hiring. With Indeed, you have access to the largest pool of talent and can hire the right people quickly. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people and fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. 
Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash MPU. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now. Go to Indeed.com slash MPU. Terms and conditions do apply. Offer is valid through December 31. Our thanks to Indeed for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So, Luke, we've been talking kind of hypothetically and theoretically a lot. Tell us a little bit uh, how you are getting your work done as a cognitive scientist and the apps and workflows that are helping you do it. I'm sure Hook plays a role. <laughs> hook, hook, hook plays a role. Uh, it plays a big role. Um, I, I've, uh, I've mentioned one thing that's that's different from what other people do. I think is that's uh, the Anki thing. So I use Anki on a daily basis. I add material to it and I rehearse. I rehearse not the right word. I practice with it. Um, and I, like I said, I'm. I've started using Remnote. I, uh, I, I mean, it's exploratory at this at this point, um, but I'm I'm watching that with uh, with with interest. Um, I use Pinboard. I use Text Expander, and I use them together. Um, I use Text Expander as a bookmarking tool. It's another. And by the way, Hook's also a bookmarking tool. In 2.0, you'll see that. But we're not, we're done with Hook for now. But Text Expander can also be used as a bookmarking tool. Um, so. When I in what way? How do you do that? Okay, it's any URL that you might want to revisit more than a couple of times. Well, this is my rule anyway. Then I'm going to put in Text Expander. I'm going, for instance, our we have a shared Google Doc behind the scenes. Well, I have a convention with Text Expander, and there's a whole story about conventions and language is all about grammar. So much about grammar. So if it's a URL for me, it always starts with pound, and then I have the abbreviation. So I put pound mpu gd. That's my Text expander shortcut to get to that particular um, to that to that URL, and I've got thousands. I've I've got thousands. I'm really pushing text expander to the max um, of these shortcuts. And because I have a grammar, it may seem complex, but using a grammar is the key to text expansion. You have to have conventions. I've got a blog post on it. You do the same thing with people. David Sparks. You might think of yourself as David Sparks, but when I'm writing to you or writing about you, you're actually you're actually at D-A-S-P. So you're the first sure. two letters of your first word and the first two letters of your second name, sorry. You know, and I use that convention. That's a grammar. I mean, it has limits. Sometimes there's collisions, but it actually can get you a long way. So text expander is part of my real bread, uh, bread, bread and butter, if you will, of mine. You're going to need to publish that someday, Luke, and share some of your tricks. I think that I think a lot of people would benefit from that. Well, that's in the, I've got them in the book, but I've also got a blog post on it. So we can, if you want, we can post, we could include in the show notes, um, this text expander thing uh, and, and this idea of grammar. Um, I also have a system. This one's homegrown. It's called Myself Quantifier. I use it with uh, a timing, the timing app, which is a great app. There's a big story that's not, that had, hadn't been completely told about time tracking and keeping knowing where your time goes and 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 uh and there's a cognitive science story which i tried to articulate uh in my cognitive productivity book and on a quite extensive argument on the blog on my cogs blog for okay so the product that i developed it's free it's a it's a, it's a spread set of spreadsheets called my self quantifier apple had its eye products i've got my sleep button i've got my self quantifier and the original hook name was actually my meta but anyways my self quantifier is about quantifying how you spend your time and 
it's actually very easy to lose track of where your time goes. It's so, and there's re, there's research, and some key research was done in 1979 about the fact that even if very soon after processing information, you forgot it, forgotten it. Working memory is very limited. So that means that knowing where your time went is very difficult to track. So I love Cal Newport's books uh, and his deep work. His deep work stuff is very important, but he's a digital minimalist in his book. And, and sometimes I, you know, in this conversation between authors and scientists, I would say that that book goes too far in a digital minimalist way. We need better tools to address cognitive productivity pain points, such as time management and time, time tracking. So my self-quantifier is a very detailed spreadsheet that you can use to track your time and you use it with text expander. And uh, yeah, you can, every time I switch tasks at, at my desk, switch projects, I actually enter a new row in the time, in the time tracking spreadsheet. And it's got my start time and my end time. There's a text expander shortcut that I'll use for my project because I've got multiple projects. So why would I spend time doing this? It sounds like, oh, it's extra time. You shouldn't do this. You're wasting time. No, no, no. You've got to stop, slow down, and be reflective about your attention switches because that's where we get, that's where we go awry. As a matter of fact, I also quantify when I look look at the news, and I notice my reading of the news online when I developed the system a few years back just went way down because I had a penalty. Every time I looked at the news, I had to have a role for that. It was not just a penalty. It was a reflection point where I caught myself. I'm doing this. I don't want an entry in my spreadsheet saying in the middle of the day, I just spent 15 minutes reading the news. That's irrelevant. So um, if you use a passive time tracking system, and I do recommend them like timing, but if you just use that, you're just passive. I don't think that's enough. There's enough research to suggest that that wouldn't be enough. It's not something that's directly been looked at, but it's an implication. You know, my, my thinking has evolved on this as well, because I, I was always a fan of passive only, but I do think I've recognized the, the lack of intentionality that I carry around with me when I don't stop and, you know, and like calendar blocking, a lot of the things I do, we're, we're kind of straying into the stuff we talk about on the Focus podcast now, but the, um, I do think that stopping and saying, okay, now I'm going to set a timer for preparing for Mac power users. And then it's like your brain just goes into that mode and you are intentionally doing it as opposed to drifting between reading the news and, you know, doing, you know, making a sandwich or whatever else you, your that, uh, that rebellious organ between your ears wants you to do. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people in the quantified self movement say, well, it's about induction, which is going from observation to generalization. So a lot of people think that, oh, you need to, time track in order to be able to discover something about yourself. I'm not an inductivist scientifically. It's not the way to go. And, and personally, I'm not either. So for me, it's not about discovering patterns. It's, it's more about what you're saying is becoming intentional about attention shifts. And also it allows you and forces you to be reflective about your projects. And that's where Omni, I, I love um, OmniFocus. I've got kind of my life's projects are in there. So my Text expander shortcuts actually mimic the structure of the projects that are in OmniFocus. What I'd like the Omni Group to do is to look at that free product that I've made and find a way of mapping the two so that time tracking, maybe a collaboration with the with the timing app, you know, so that your projects, your projects in OmniFocus actually should be the default projects you have in timing. Why are they different? So we need, and I know that Omni Group, OmniFocus is great. It has all the automation hooks. So we need we need the timing app to actually draw on them. 
So another app, if I may, is Envy Ultra. It's not out of beta yet, but it also allows you to address the two-second rule. And uh, you get this muscle memory for finding things. If you have conventions for naming fi- files, I use Envy Ultra a lot. I used to use Envault. It's And one of the great things about it is that it's so plain text and markdown, and you can use an analogous app on your iPhone. So it's a way to handle uh, the iPhone, Mac, uh, um, you know, continuing your life basically across the devices. Yeah, what 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 is your writing app on iPhone and iPad? Okay, so um, one writer, and I will, you know, I'd like I'd like to. Well, I've been having problems with one writer recently in that uh, text expander's broken with it, and um, and I'm thinking, wow, it'd be really nice to use drafts and draft. I have a subscription to Draft Drafts Pro because of uh, the automation in there, but I'm not a uh, I'm not not actually a regular user. I'm not a power user yet. But it's something that I know I need to better appreciate and want to leverage. Now, the the friction I'm having, you might have a solution to that, is that I can't get it to load a folder like OneWriter will. I want, I don't want my data, I never want my data to be stuck in a container that's arbitrary. I want to be able to move files around at whim. Um, and I want to be able to say, okay, here's a folder in iCloud. I'm using iCloud more than Dropbox um, for solo stuff. And um, yeah, so I'd like, I'd like, drafts to be able to open a folder and keep it open and 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 i need to be able to do the kinds of searching that one writer and nv ultra provide so am i missing something can i just yeah, grab an arbitrary it, folder it's it's you know i i have been going as the listeners know looking really heavily at obsidian as kind of a personal knowledge management system which is a drafts folder which i use one writer on but uh, i still use drafts to uh to compose everything and i basically put all my yeah. obsidian templates into drafts and then i have a drafts action that puts them into the proper place on dropbox but it's not an mm-hmm. editing platform once it's created then i have to go over to one writer so i don't really have a good solution for you on that yet hopefully someday that'll evolve yes yes well generally speaking i'm very i, I use i use um I use I use the Mac for my real creative stuff and 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 the writing that happens on and I do a lot on my iPhone but it's really an iPad it's really just little thoughts for instance uh, some little to dos where I won't even launch OmniFocus I might just add a to do I've got my files are organized very systematically for instance uh, with people and including my my wife so I can type her name by the way here's a little hack I just you just add X at the end of something so her name's Carol so I write Carol X immediately. Envy Ultra, one writer, uh, even Spotlight would find it because that's unique. So you, you need a again. It comes back to naming conventions and grammar, grammars. And maybe I even said this in the book, of my second book, that I've got a love hate relationship with naming conventions. But uh, because I don't want systems that are that rely on these weird naming conventions. Having said that, it's it's such a great way to get to your two second rule, and and grammar is very powerful. That I've got these, and, I, and I've got these grammars that I use for identifying things. So, uh, for instance, co- I've got many cognitive tasks task lists. So I use CG, CGVT, and then with NV Ultra or whatever, I can get my cognitive tasks. What are cognitive tasks? They are in my thinking things I need to think about. So before going for a jog, cycling, a walk, I'm going to load my brain with cognitive tasks so I don't have to memorize them. It's it's surprisingly difficult to, you know, when you're, you've got, multi, I've got a ton of projects. The older we get, we have all these responsibilities. Some people still have kids. I don't want kids, you know, but like it needs to be written down. And the, 
And it's so easy not to be productive when you're walking. Now, the mindfulness folks will say, be mindful. And I think there's mile, you can get some mileage on that. But let's face it, Albert Einstein, and there's no evidence that Darwin, Einstein, all these people did the mindfulness thing. I think it's useful. I do the mindfulness thing too. But normally, if I'm going on a bike ride, I'm actually working. Um, and that, that allows me to get exercise and still be productive. So the way I do it is I've got my cognitive task. So if, it's, it's also hard to think at the computer and also to be creative. There's a story behind that. So that's, so, so mobile cognitive productivity is about uh, getting better mileage out of your mobile time. So it's not time when I'm actually writing and executing. I'll do my creative work while cycling. And by the time I sit in front of my computer, then, okay, the ideas are in much better shape. When you do, when you just, Luke, when you decide to study that, I'll be your contra example. Because when I take a walk, I just take a walk. <laughs> Well, you go for it. And I don't want to preach. You know what? I absolutely, in anything I say, I mustn't be, I mustn't sound like preaching because it's so, everything's individual. Some people like graphic organizers. I'm an outline person. So mindfulness is great, but I personally um, try to, I'm a little bit crazy. Sure. Now we, we, we got a lot more in the outline. We're going to have to have you back someday, but I want, before we go, one question I want to ask you, you're a guy who has a PhD in cognitive scientists science you spend a lot of time thinking about the, its application to technology so you are more aware i'd even say more mindful of these problems and issues than most people where do you get stuck anyway you know where are the areas that you still get stuck on this stuff you know what i've had health problems in the last few years uh but they're they're okay they're good i'm i'm um they 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 decreased my cognitive productivity for the last few years and i've got them uh figured out they're kind of ironic um and uh, so in that sense, uh, so why did I mention that? Well, it's that affects basically the amount of time you have during the day. So that's kind of an incidental getting stuck. That's probably the first thing that came to my mind was sure. Um, what was that one? Well, I mean, you also like you mentioned news. Like, yes, you, I'm that, that's one for me. I'll, if I open the news okay, app, yeah. I'm dead for like 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I get I get stuck in election cycles, too. I've, <laughs> I'm not an American, so I haven't I've I haven't delved deeply but i try to i really try to avoid political news um so i've like for instance in twitter i have a whole bunch of blocks i have to use twitter oh there's where there's the big challenge you know twitter um i need to use twitter for for the businesses it's a and it's also a discovery tool cal newport will say it doesn't have sufficient benefits the costs outweigh the benefits and there's truth to that but some of us need to be on the platform and it does have productivity benefits uh potential discovery benefits okay so so twitter is really hard and uh, so i fight with twitter um and and the news thing um i do have phases like where like recently you know the american news is so hard but in twitter i've got these blocks like donald trump uh a bunch of keywords things i really don't want to be distracted by i'll actually block those keywords um but i still like i'm human i get stuck and uh and and uh, yeah like You've, I'm sure you've talked about this. Close all your browser windows, like anybody else. If if I go back to Safari and I haven't closed a tab with a distractor, uh, you know, seductive information, then I can lose ten minutes. But with again, because I time track it, it I I kind of pay the price, so it does it does help. But I do, you know, I've i my attention is limited, like everybody else. I get, you know, I'm susceptible to all these uh, all these issues. Um, another thing is I'm running a lot of projects. So when I had more hours in a day than I've had in the last few years, like I'm still working kind of all the time, but I had to rest 
you know, for 45 minutes a day, um, is that I found running multiple projects is really requires more time than I had. So certain things uh, slipped in that way. So you got to calibrate yourself. Cal Newport says, you know, successful people finish projects quickly. And I think that's true. There's truth to that. I myself am content with a lot of projects and some projects take a long time. Einstein took seven years. Immanuel Kant, I think he took 15 years. You know, Darwin took a long time. So I might get hit by a truck tomorrow, in which case I'll say, shoot, my error was I had too many projects and I didn't close enough of them. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm I'm kind of content with with having multiple projects. And the trick is that in my case, they're interleaved. Um, they're interwoven so that progress on one helps with the other. Um, yeah. Well, Luke, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, it, it's it's fascinating what you're doing. I, I love the idea of bringing science to the way we use our computers and maybe helping us get a little more effective in the process. Uh, I'd recommend checking out Luke's books and uh, and the Hook app. We talked about it. You you got the idea for it. If that's something of interest to you, we've got a link in the show notes for it. And go ahead and check that out. Um, I want to thank our sponsors today, and that is our friends over at Mailbrew, Samebox, Microsoft, and Indeed. Uh, we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. Luke, where should people go to find you? My personal site is cogzest.com. So that's where I do my personal blogging. Um, and that's, so for me in particular, that would be the, the place to go, cogzest.com. And that's for cognitive zest. And it's a way to indicate to the world that it's not just about the dry cognition, but it's about motivation, emotions, and all these things. All right, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. We are the Mac Power Users, and we'll see you next week. Well, you're still on the call, so I guess you're, everything's... Mostly okay. The uh, I was just looking evacuation orders. They've now evacuated twenty thousand houses or something. Wow, man! But the uh, but they're the wind is blowing the right way for me, so it's okay. But the my city has now given us notice that we could be evacuated. But you know what? I do all these backups, and I'm ready. You know, whatever. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> you got your file. Like that was your first. I like, yeah, I got files everywhere. <laughs> yeah literally pull a, a drive off the velcro off the bottom of my desk and i've got my whole life with me there you but, go yeah I, I think we'll be okay i mean i, well, you I know don't... if you taped them to the back of your display they'd be easier to get yeah there you go mm. or just duct tape them i mean yeah. the people who are most at risk for these fires are usually the people that live out in the wood you know there's like kind of wood areas near me where there's like single homes i live mm-hmm. in the middle of a tract so tracks are you know we have we have um, fire, anti-fire roofing material. The fire departments can defend our community very easily because, you know, it's like circling the wagons kind of thing. But so I'm not super worried, but uh, this is pretty close. <laughs> I can yeah. tell you, like, I'm not going to be doing any hiking for a while. The air quality index right now is like 200 at my house. So. Yes. Stay inside. <laughs> yeah. I could, uh, I could go, I could go, um, I go for a hike or I could smoke a pack of cigarettes and yeah. the same effect. Don't, don't do either. Both yeah. of those sound bad. Anyway, um, new iPhone 12 pro. I haven't talked to anybody that had one yet. I've been waiting to hear from you. 
Okay. Yeah. So I, I bought one. So I said on the show previously and other places that I was going to hold out for the Max. And my decision making really came down to the fact that I really don't like the Max size. And that's something sure. you notice every time you pick up the phone. Yeah. It, it wasn't because the Max wasn't available, right? No. Okay. No. Uh, it really was, you know what? I had the 10S Max and I didn't like the size. And, uh, so anyway, so I got the 12 Pro. I got it in silver, as I discussed. The silver looks awesome. The stainless steel bands are, they're surprisingly shiny, but also, like, they, they grow on me, they grow on you pretty quickly. When I unboxed it, I thought, oh my goodness, this is like too, too blingy for me. But yeah. it, it's, uh, I think it's going to age well. You know, stainless steel kind of gets dinged and scratched, and I, I like that look, um, and boy, the flat sides, man. I hope we have flat side iPhones forever. I don't want to go back to the the curvy sides. Yeah, I hope it takes them just as long as it did to get back to the flat sides as it does to get off of the flat sides. Yeah, because we've had the round sides since the iPhone 6 in 2014. So it's been a long time. And it really, this phone, like in your hand, feels like the spiritual successor to the iPhone 5. Um, especially the Pro because the glass back as matte so it kind of feels the way aluminum feels to to a degree yeah uh, i think it feels more like the five than the four maybe uh, just because of the way it's constructed but it is a gorgeous phone and the you know as you would expect from apple the tolerances are amazing i mean the screen is perfectly flat like you can't even really even discern where the stainless steel and the glass meet it is it is quite nice yeah i i feel like the um I really like the design of the square edges and the iPhone four, as I keep saying is my favorite iPhone design wise ever. Mm -hmm. There was something about the offset. There was like a little ledge between the stainless steel and the glass. Yeah. That just really pushed my design buttons. I guess now it's a flush edge, which probably makes more sense. It probably won't break as much. And it's definitely more like the new phone is more like the five than the four, but, mm -hmm. but the stainless steel bands on the edge is one of the reasons why I'm so attracted to the pro models. Yeah. Um, and I've been using the big one for so long that I'm just used to the big one. And, sure. um, but I, I do wonder, and we're going to have a guest on the show who is very knowledgeable about cameras. We're booking that right now. Uh, I do wonder how much difference there really is going to be between the smaller and the larger cameras. It may not be as much as, as you think, but definitely it's a bigger sensor on the bigger camera. So that, that mm -hmm. should help. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see, you know, this camera and I've only had it as we're recording this a few days, but in taking a bunch of pictures this weekend inside and outside and, you know, all three lenses, it definitely feels better than the 11 pro camera, but it's not night and day, you know, it's not a radical change from the 11 pro but that's, I don't think that's bad because the 11 Pro was such a good camera system. Yeah. It it really, I, I never was happy with the 10s camera. Uh, Apple's continued to be a lot better with their HDR stuff. I've taken a couple of photos of this with this, you know, shooting it into a light or the sun or something, and the HDR just handles it. It's It's spectacular. So they continue to get better at that. You know, we're really at a point where, these things, these things can be better thought of for most people as portable cameras and not smartphones. Yeah, uh, I feel like the the big leap in cameras was last year. Mm -hmm. I mean, the eleven camera is so much better than the ten camera, and you know it, it, it remains to be seen what the effect will be. 
with the larger iPhone Pro, it's going to have the stabilization built into the sensor, and it's a bigger sensor. Maybe it's going to be another quantum leap, but I'm not holding my breath on that. Um, my daughter got, we, we've never bought a new phone for anybody in my family but me, you know. Mm-hmm. Such a, I'm such a jerk. But the, um, <laughs> but you know, she has a job and she wanted to get her own iPhone. And I said, okay. So she got the mint green iPhone 12, you know. And so we've had that around the house now for a few days and she's been nice enough to let me play with it. She knows I like to talk about this stuff with you. And it feels so much like an iPhone 5 to me. The iPhone 12 mm-hmm. standard without the stainless steel. I mean, man, that it, it's more than a spiritual successor. It's like a cousin of the yeah. iPhone uh, 5. But it feels great in the hand, the square sides. It really does. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of questions about the size because the 12 Pro is bigger than the 11 Pro. It's really not that much bigger. Uh, I mean, yeah, if you sit them side by side or like you put the old phone in the new case, you can tell it's this one's a little bit taller. But honestly, in the hand, I don't feel it. Um, I, I really think that this feels basically like the old one did. Uh, if anything, it actually feels a little more narrow. It's actually, I don't think it is, but because of the flat sides and the bezels being a little smaller, it feels like the distance from the rail to the screen is is less. And so it feels more narrow in your hand, at least to me, than the old one did. Yeah, yeah I, I like the size. I love the finish. Uh, I think the cameras are going to be good. You know, one thing, um, maybe the big thing historically about this phone will be will be 5G. And I don't, really have good five I don't have, don't have good 4G service in my house. I can get 5G in my house if I stay in the right place and it's actually a little slower than LTE, but I did get out on Saturday and went around town a little bit just kind of seeing how 5G would be and I never found the really fast ultra wideband. I don't know if AT&T has that in Memphis. I didn't actually look at their coverage map. I kind of just want to go like drive around and see see what happened. Um but I was able to reach speeds on 5G of 148 down and 26 up, which is way faster than LTE was here. So having that speed, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where that goes. Um, Yeah. I, I would really like to see that speed on the iPad, and I would really, really like to see that speed in a 5G equipped Mac notebook. We'll see if that if that happens. But I mean, 148 down, but especially 26 up, that is a huge difference from where we've been before. Yeah, I can't help but feel like that's like a check that's not going to get cashed for a year or two. You know, yeah. you're holding on I to it. I think you're right. You know, and it'll be great when it's here. But, um, and I, you know, people who are saying, well, I need to upgrade for the 5G. No, next year when you upgrade, 5G will be just as important. And, it'll, and since it's here this year, it'll be here next year too. That's not a good reason to upgrade. I think you upgrade no. if you want a new phone. But, yeah. The um the overall design and I I just can't but feel but like the iPhone 12 not the not not the pro version even just the standard one is going to be hugely successful. And you know, it's a combination of camera system 5G will be relevant in you know into the future and that OLED screen on the entry level iPhone it's got kind of like a MacBook Air iPhone 5 vibe to mm-hmm. it to me where i think this is a phone that people are gonna like really like yeah i think you're right and i mean i think about what i see out in the world and 
uh, there are a lot of iPhone 11s out there. I think the 10R and 11 were both really popular, but I think the 12 is only going to build on that success. Uh, I think the the 12 mini is still a bit of an unknown. My wife has showed interest in that, so <laughs> there may be a 12 mini coming to my house next month. Oh, but, cool. We can talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I told her, I was like, even if you don't end up keeping it, I, I want to review it. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But it's just, I mean, their strategy is so interesting this year. But man, I'm really excited about this phone. Every time I pick it up, it's 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 like this is such a clear departure from where they've been design wise, and and yeah, like I would love to have Touch ID on it, um, but that's not not wasn't in the cards this year. Maybe it will be next year. But other than that, which I really can't be upset at Apple about, really. I mean, it they could have done it, I think, but you know th- that's a that's a very complicated machine. Uh, the the iPhone factory <laughs> machine, very complicated. Um, and I do still wish that they would move to USB-C on this thing. You know, I'm at a place where everything I have charges over USB-C except my phone and my AirPods. You know, they're the only lightning things left uh, that I use on a daily basis, except other than my, my keyboard, I guess. But it would be nice to be able just to have uh, one cable to charge things. I mean, we're in a place now where uh, my wife did get an iPad Air. She had an original small iPad Pro, you know, the the old nine point seven, and it was just falling apart. And I got her the new uh, the new Air, but it comes with USB C. And so now we're in our kitchen where we used to just have a Lightning charger, and I just would never charge my iPad Pro there. I got a little dual charger uh, from Anchor or somebody that has. USB-A and USB-C. So now there's a USB-C cable and a lightning cable plugged into the kitchen so we can charge our tablets or our phones. And it's like, this is just a, it's just kind of a pain to live in this two strategy world. And I wish Apple would just finally move everything to USB-C. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, people are going to complain. But I think that the sooner we do it, uh, the better. It's really a no-win for Apple, right? Because all the nerds just want them to just move into the future and just go to USB-C. Mm-hmm. But so many more average consumers are just going to lose their mind if they have to replace the cables. Yeah. Yep. And then it's going to become Apple's just trying to take our money, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Just, they can't. You know. I mean, they can't win. That happened big time in 30-pin to Lightning. You know, speaking of the whole iPhone, speaking of the iPhone 5, where that happened, I get it. And I'm sure those wounds are still fresh to some people at Apple, but it would be nice for those of us who like carry a MacBook and have an iPad, (laughs) have an iPhone, like the iPhone's sort of the odd device out now. And and it's also just so superior that the lightning was so superior to the 30 pin and they still got, they still took it, you know, they Mm -hmm. still had to take that. Just imagine. But um, I, I I forgot that you also got an iPad Air. So what are your general impressions of that uh, as someone who's an iPad Pro user? Yeah, so I have the 11-inch iPad Pro, and Mary's iPad Air is basically the same device, except very slightly green. <laughs> the colors on the iPad yeah. Air are not very vibrant. The green is just green. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, side by side, yeah, the screen is a touch smaller, so the bezels are a hair bigger. You would never know unless you had them side by side. And even then you have to know to look for it. I mean, it feels just like my iPad Pro. I set it up for her. I got her the magic keyboard and trackpad. And she's really enjoying that. She was like, oh, there's a backlit keyboard on an iPad. I was like, yeah, 
it's awesome. (laughs) Just you wait. And like half the cost, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it is, um, yeah, it is like a cheap iPad pro and the things that it lacks, she doesn't care about, you know, she doesn't care about the high refresh screen. The, the only thing that's a little bit of a bummer is it has two speakers instead of four. The iPad pro sounds so good. The air's a step down there, but I think that's probably the most tangible thing that most people would notice. If you are going to buy an iPad, the iPad Air, I think, is totally the one to get. Uh, do you Can you tell a difference between the refresh rate? Well, so I have ProMotion turned off on my iPad Pro because oh, really? high refresh rate <laughs> makes my brain... I, I get... Uh, it's not good. <laughs> I don't feel very okay. good after a minute, so... Wow. Uh, so, no. <laughs> I so see no difference. It. <laughs> yeah. Um, none at all. So... You know, some people may. I know some people want promotion to come to the phone. I think it. I think it will at some point. But you know, the iPad Air is is. A, I think it's a really spectacular balance of cost and pro features. You know, getting the new Apple Pencil, getting the new keyboard trackpad, you know, getting USB C, getting the new design. Like, it's fantastic, and it makes me excited to see where the iPad Pro is going to go next because the iPad Air is knocking on its door, right? It's just yeah, right on its heels now. It. Yeah. Yeah. The iP- yeah, the iPad Pro really has to prove its worth now. And I think this opens Apple to push the iPad Pro even further in the in the future. So the marketing copy should be iPad Air, half the price, and it doesn't make Steven vomit. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it is I can't even explain it. It's if if you're out there and you experience this, you guess you know what I feel like. But it feels like my brain's on fire. I, I um, notice the promotion vividly. I I, mm-hmm. I like it. I keep it turned on and I definitely notice because I do a lot of reading on my iPad. And um yeah. the uh so I, I do like that. That would be a tough feature to give up, but when you consider the price difference, it might not be that tough to give up. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. That's kind of the same story with the the 12 and 12 pro that unless you really want the third camera, the iPhone 12 gets you basically all the way there, right? It's OLED. It's the same size. Uh, Some would say that the materials are actually better. I know a lot of people prefer the aluminum sides over the stainless steel. It makes it way less, which is nice. And Apple is just, it's so interesting this year that at least right now, the kind of the middle ground is, is totally the way to go. Like, unless you want the third camera or you just want the max, the maximum phone size you can get, just like the iPad Air, the iPhone 12 is the one that almost everybody should get. And it's the less expensive one. Yeah. I mean, for me, the big phone, and I know this sounds like an old man thing, but mm-hmm. it's sadly true. I can read the big phone with my glasses off. And yeah. <laughs> that's kind of nice. You know, sometimes sure. I don't have my glasses with me. So oh, yeah. I'm willing to put up with a lot for that thing you know and i know most of the people who are talking about this stuff on podcasts don't have that problem yet but trust me one day you'll appreciate (laughs) it so i kind of think of the big iphone also as a small ipad you know yeah and or pocket ipad so that kind of like is another reason why i am so torn on color though i mean my first thought was blue you know that's new i'll get the blue one but then i was looking at it i'm like wow that is really blue and i'm not sure I like to use colorful cases and stuff. And if I get a blue one, that kind of really limits my options. Yeah. A, a friend of mine got the the 12 Pro in blue, the you know, the Pacific blue. Yeah. And I saw it over the weekend. It is not as blue as it looks in Apple's photos. It's it's a little more toned down. The the regular iPhone 12, that blue is just like cranked 
all the way up. Yeah. Uh, but the Pacific blue is, is a little bit uh, dialed back from that. And I think it's nice. It is very much the cousin of Midnight Green. It, it, they feel like they're sort of related in a way. And the blue stainless looks pretty cool. It's 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 really actually pretty neat looking. Um, so I think if you liked sort of the midnight green feel, the Pacific blue is not a huge step away from that. Okay. Well, see, that just makes the decision harder because gold is definitely <laughs> out for me. Yes, I, I don't see myself carrying a gold phone. Mm-mm. It's just not on brand, you know, but the... Uh, uh, and black is just so boring. Everybody has the black one, right? So I was thinking I might do like you. You have to send me some pictures of your phone. I want to see it. Okay. Yeah. I'll send you some pictures. Uh, you know, this is also hard because most places, Apple stores aren't open and you know, usually what would happen like last year, I just be bopped in the Apple store and like looked at all the colors. Right. And then you can take some pictures and form some opinions. Uh, I don't think Apple did themselves any favors with the iPhone 12 pro because it's product photography is all like dark and mysterious like just show me like a picture of the phone on a white background just like you did the iphone 12 but you know they didn't do that this time but i will say to people out there looking thinking about the blue it is not as in your face as i thought it would be it is it's pretty nice uh, it's not for me i like the white and silver and i've had several white iphones over the years and uh, i like the contrast of that especially now that the front glass is always black uh, i like the way that that goes together and I think it's a safe choice. I agree with you. The black one's boring. Um, I think if you if you're not sold on the the blue, I think the the white and silver is very classy looking. That's probably where I'll end up, but I'll, we'll find out in a week or two. You know, I've got I've got time. Yeah, November sixth is the pre order. And I will want. I just want to acknowledge today you quoted Star Wars and you talked about Bebop on the Mac Power users, and it just warms my heart. That's all. I just want to end there. Well, you know, people spend time together. They, they slowly become each other. So now I just need to go out and get in my truck. That's right. You'll get in your truck and uh, start collecting some old Macs. You'll be set. There, well, I talked about the Mac SE. What's happening yeah. here? <laughs> We're becoming each other. <laughs> oh, no.